Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm curious, Jen, what's new with you? I have been experiencing um, such terrible brain fog. I don't know where your, your fogged brain is lately, but I have been experiencing such terrible brain fog. And I think I know the reason. It's because, whatever, sorry, listeners, we're going to just jump right in it. I got a period. And when I get my period, I don't take um, hormones. So I don't take them for like the whatever when I'm, when I'm bleeding. And in the course of that, not having the hormone therapy that I've been on, I realized how much it's helping me. And also I ran out of my ADHD meds meds, and I have to have a doctor's appointment before I can re-up the prescription. So it's like a whole fucking thing. But I have been so dumb. I It's like worrisome to me. Like I, I haven't been able to recall words. I yesterday called Alex my brother. I was like, am I, am I demenced? Like is what's happening to me? And I think it's all hormonal. I think this is really what this what happens to our brains sometimes when we're fully in, you know, hormone shifts, but it's been really scary and I've been really slow moving and slow going and mentally and have had to kind of work around it. Like in meetings, I'm not picking up things as quickly as I should. And anyway, it's a fucking scary thing. And I know a lot of listeners write into us about it. And I wanted to talk about it because it's, you know, because men, don't, is, men don't have to fucking go through it. it. It It is scary. And I sort of wish, because I'm the same way. I've said before on this podcast that when I'm, when we're having a conversation with somebody like the one we just had, which is yeah. fantastic. And you guys will hear in a few minutes. Um, I have, I can, re- I'm so afraid I'm not going to remember a sentence from the beginning of the sentence until the sentence ends that I have to write down what the sentence was going to be about. It is scary. It is scary. And the word retrieval thing is really scary, but I go in and out of that. You know? I do too. I go in and out of it. I mean, you know, and it was like, okay, so Sunday night I had a higher dose edible than I usually have accidentally, like I, whatever, I bought the wrong package. And so I woke up also with like a pot hangover, you know, I mean, not mm-hmm. to be fully disclosure, but so that was part of it. But like, it's just, 
I fucking hate it. And I don't want it. Like, I'm like, what can I do? And so I was looking at this thing. Do you know that people are now microdosing nicotine? I microdose nicotine. I mean, I, I, I'm addicted to nicotine lozenges. Wait, still? Okay, because this is supposed to be like revolutionary is like the microdosing of nicotine because nicotine turns on all these receptors yeah, in the there's brain. Nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with nicotine no, on its own. It's there's nothing wrong. I've never had a doctor tell me. I have not been on nicotine lozenges since I quit smoking. Like I, I, I went off of the gum or whatever after right. I quit smoking. I just like like them. No, I found I found like a microdose. It's it's basically the same thing. It's a lozenge, but it's made by some I don't know. And I'm like, why am I following like health advice on on TikTok or YouTube <laughs> or whatever the hell it is? And like, listeners, do not listen to me because I am in no way a medical doctor. <laughs> but I saw there's like this company that puts out these low dose nicotine lozenges with some other I forget what else is in it. Maybe there's a little bit of caffeine in it. And I thought maybe that will turn my brain back on because I can't afford to have my brain just fucking be like, nah, not today. Like, well, yeah. Okay. First of all, first of all, um, I am not a medical doctor, but I've been on lots of medicine. So I feel <laughs> like I can say a few things and I am familiar with ADHD drugs because I take one of them, not for ADHD. Yes. And you can't just stop taking them one day without feeling like your brain is a big marshmallow. You just can't. So that's a contributing factor. Right, right. I think the hormone thing is probably a contributing factor. I think you've got like a perfect storm of stupidity happening right now. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell. You're, you're, you sound coherent. You're saying smart things. But I'm basing this on what you said. No, but you could feel it. It is. It's like it's. <laughs> The marshmallow is perfect. It's just like, <laughs> where am I? It's just like I'm in I'm in goo. I'm just in goo. I feel like I'm like underwater. So anyway, that's that's what's happening to me this week. And I don't know. I really loved this conversation with with Amy Rigby. I couldn't believe what a beautiful person she is. And I, I, I cried like six times. She did. She did listen her. She cried a lot. Um, no, Amy Rigby is wonderful and I've known her for a long time, not especially well, but we've known each other. I wrote a profile of her for spin a million years ago and had this one really fun day with her and the other two women in her band, the shams after South by Southwest, where we drove to Houston, stopped at a flea market. We stopped at this massive Mexican flea market on the way and got really, really high (laughs) and, it was just one of those great days. It was just one of those technicolor days. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I knew she was a listener and I was, we were just talking one day and I, you and I, and I was like, Oh, we should have Amy Rigby on. And she was wonderful. She's just wonderful. You'll like it. Yeah. You'll all like it. Do you want to talk more? I don't know. We could talk more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell, I will tell everyone <laughs> That um, in, in anybody who's following the ongoing saga of my apology. Oh, yes. I'm following it personally. Okay. Ongoing saga of friend apology. Listeners, back up. Kim has tried to make amends with this one friend and has recently sent a letter to this friend. Okay, go. I got a very gracious response. <gasps> oh, good. Very brief. Very brief, but it didn't matter. It was really gracious and it meant a lot to me. That is excellent. I'm very happy to hear it. I have still got nothing. 
except except my own torment. I've really used it as you know how like there's always the bone that you chew on to make yourself feel bad, it, and it, the bone yes. like r- rotates. It doesn't matter. Like, oh, I know exactly what my current bone is. Yes. yes. Well, this is my current bone. Like I'm such a piece of shit. I can't believe. Like of course this person would never forgive me. Like I'm terrible. Like that's the bone. I really have. I've really just put all my um. How can I self? self-flagellate today bone. Um, that's but it. You can't, but it's not your responsibility if this person doesn't want, it's just, you've done what you can do. As they say in AA, you've cleaned up your side of the street. I know, man, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to like choose, like, as we've discussed for a long time, my kink is like self-flagellation. <laughs> like, <I> just, <laughs> like, and like self-dramatization. I mean, if I'm really yeah. honest, somebody brought that up. Um, somebody brought that up the other day. Oh, my husband. <laughs> Some person. Some person. <laughs> Who was it again? Who was it again? Exactly. Um, well, I'm very happy for you though. Do you feel do you feel like a sense of closure? I feel a sense of I do feel a sense of closure. I mean, I I do. Good. I feel like I did this thing I needed to have done a long time ago. It was received as well as I could hope for it to be received. Good. Good. And 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 yeah, so I feel like you know, I, I feel like I can exhale in a way that I haven't exhaled in a long time. That's that's exactly what you're looking for out of that is just like a, a sense of peace. Now, I do want to say one other thing, and yes. that is that you and I must make a concerted effort to watch the same shows because I did not, because I have now watched several episodes of the rehearsal. It's, a, it's, it's just, it's incredible. It is so good and so it, it, it is such a like a, a meta, which is not usually my, you know, milieu. Um, nice word. It is such a mind fuck. It is such a mind fuck. And he is such a talented weirdo. He's such a talented Nathan Fielder. Man. Yes. Such a talented weirdo. But so I don't even want to say things. Just watch it, guys, because or you may hate it. It's not for everyone, certainly, but it, he's doing something. Like, remember that guy who did that comedy special, Bo Burnham? Yes. Yes, of course. Like, of course, inside. When I watched that, inside. When I watched that during COVID, I was like, okay, nobody's done that. That yes. thing he did, nobody's done. Yes. And I feel the same way about the rehearsal. Nobody's done that thing he did. Yes. And that is so rare to find something that's truly original. It's just, it just, it rare. It just never happens. Yeah. It never happens. Um, I have been watching the, well, we should be watching things at the same time. So let's like come out with a playlist. So let me go back to that for one second. Maybe we should just be like, how about we both watch this this week? But I have been watching the, um, the Ethan Hawke, who I have to say still my greatest celebrity crush of all time. I, I almost made out with him one night in my life and it's a, it's a longer story and I, I did not. And I, I will regret it forever, but, um, I, I have been watching his um, Joanne Woodward, Paul Newman documentary. It's oh, like people a, rave about it. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good. And the thing that's so good about it is that she is actually so amazing, so honest, so smart, so talented. And he knows that she's more talented than he is. And, but he has so much more success than she does. And it's just a really interesting friction that Ethan Hawke very smartly tracks throughout the series. Um, Hmm. We're, you know, and we talk about this on this episode, even we're two creative people together 
there's always this sort of weird power dynamic, especially if you do the same thing. And Mm -hmm. it really plays with that a lot. And it's, it's really cool. And there's a lot of good footage and there's a lot of good, um, old interviews with people. It's based on all these old interviews that Paul Newman did with people they knew. And to, in order to make what would have been his autobiography, and then he burned all the tapes, but they have transcripts. He burned the tapes because he was like, fuck it. I don't want to actually make this. And when you hear these tapes or when you hear people reading these transcripts, you're like, oh, I see why you decided to abandon this project. Right, right, (laughs) right. Because it's not particularly flattering to you or your marriage or, you know, et cetera. Um, But yeah. Wow. Yeah, I hear it's also very illuminating about the kind of parents they were. I don't know that I've gotten to that. I'm on, I just finished three, so I don't know if I've gotten to that yet, which I can't wait for. Okay. Okay. Yes. That's good to know. I do. That is on my list. Yes. So watch, it's worth it. Okay. So let's get into it because this is a really good episode. It's a great episode. All right. Our guest today is Amy Rigby. Amy is a singer, songwriter, and author. She has performed in such bands as The Last Roundup and The Shams, and her 1996 solo debut, Diary of a Mod Housewife, led to her being named Songwriter of the Year by Spin Magazine. Amy has written songs for Laura Cantrell and Ronnie Spector, among others, and is the author of the 2019 memoir, Girl to City, which traces her journey from Elton John worshiping suburban Pittsburgh girl to punk rock loving CBGB denizen and beyond. Amy has also written for Slate, The Village Voice, and Talk House. Welcome, Amy. It's so good to have you today. It's a thrill to be here. <laughs> we're we're really super is. excited. We, we've been wanting to have a musician on for so long. And just because I, I think it's such an interesting career and especially the longevity you've had in this career. Mm-hmm. And so the first question I wanted to ask you, you've been a working musician for a long time. How do you balance your creative side with the side that has to get the bills paid? That's always been a challenge and continues to be a challenge. And I think, you know, during the pandemic, I actually realized what it felt like to earn a regular paycheck because I collected unemployment from my, Mm. you know, I work part-time sometimes in a bookstore, um, like a bookstore bar, uh, really kind of cool place. And um, anyway, I, it took me a couple months to even realize that my daughter was like, mom, you should apply for unemployment. I was like, really? I could, I could get that. Hmm. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know I was eligible. And all of a sudden, you know, like I had money like on a regular basis and it was like, wow, this is so wonderful. And um, cause yeah, with being a musician, it's always like, you know, not feast or famine, but it's just like, you know, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, sometimes you buy the shampoo you want, sometimes you like, you know, like, just like, get the kind of, you know, next to the cheapest one that sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, can can kind of fill in. And sometimes you look at the prices of everything, you know, (laughs) so anyway, so that part, I mean, I've always been an artist, so that part has never been a challenge. I always, you know, want to write and 
you know, play songs, do some kind of artwork. Right. But, uh, but, but yeah, I guess I've never been that like practical <laughs> as far as like, and this is going to make money. Was there ever a t- was there ever a time you felt like you needed to quit doing what you were doing in favor of something more stable? Was that ever tempting? Uh, it it's been sort of always kind of a question that comes up, like should I go back to school and you know try to learn a new skill or something? And uh, I've I've always like picked up work when I needed to just like pay bills and maybe uh, it wasn't a good time to be doing gigs like you know it was between records or something um, but I you know like when I temp- I temped in New York City and um, and then when I moved to like working office jobs and uh, juggling everything and uh, that was all through the '90s, and then I moved to Nashville in the in the early 2000s. And temping there was like a living hell com- <laughs> compared to working in these gorgeous, you know, like Madison Avenue buildings and BlackRock. And you know, there was some sort of cachet, you know, and and some sort of you know actual enjoyment occasionally from working some of the places I'd work in, like publishing or or like at Sony or you know broadcasting working for like a, a like a, a contractor in downtown Nashville in August like wearing all black clothes just like sweating and like there's nobody else on the street as I'm walking to this temp job at like eight in the morning was really <laughs> just like I can't I can't do this thankfully I I part of the reason I had moved to Nashville was to get a publishing deal. And thankfully I did, you know, which helped me pay the bills for a couple of years. And that was like a really, to me, felt like a solid paycheck. But so there's always been like those moments of, of just like complete, like magic miracles that kind of buy me more time. Like that bought me three yeah. years. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then, you know, the idea of like finding this other more, um, you know, more stable career just kind of subsides. <laughs> and I guess I right. just build up another, you know, I build up kind of more, I guess, toughness really to like withstand the next round. Well, now <laughs> I'm getting, you know, like I'm in my 60s and I'm actually looking at, you know, I mean, really what kind of career could I get right now that wasn't right creative and also just like well should I just start taking social security and like add that to the pot I'm never gonna retire I won't ever have the money to do that but you know like maybe I could just you know like work with (laughs) work with that social security money to you know to just like keep sustaining um how is that not draining to your creativity or do you feel like you like you do sort of feel like um you know a miracle will come every once in a while everything's going to hang together all right I think um you know you do become kind of good at hustling uh like um one of the <laughs> nicest compliments someone gave to me at, at one of my like book book reading music things was like I like your hustle and that made me feel <laughs> that made yeah. me feel so good and and so yeah like right now I'm kind of in a little like a low point like um uh 
Right. So it's like, I think I'll, you know, I, I'll, I'll screen print some tote bags. I've done t-shirts, I've done tea towels, but right. you know, like you'll probably look on Instagram tomorrow and see me like a little film of me, like with a, with a tote bag over my shoulder, like, Hey, right. you know, get yourself a dancing with Joey Ramone tote bag. And, um, you know, so always kind of, you know, just, just finding something, um, you know, put up, put up. I mean, nowadays it actually is kind of more flexible in a way like that you could put a song up on Bandcamp and really push it out there. And thankfully I've been doing this long enough. I have fans who support me. I've never done a Patreon. I don't even know how to yeah. say it. Patreon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I know. Right. You're saying it right. But, you know, like I can see that that's like I, I a lot of artists and people I admire, you know, do that to kind of keep something kind of rolling in. But um, but I I am lucky because um, my husband and I like own a house. So like when I had a publishing deal, I managed to buy a house and like he had a house. And like when we got together, like we had mortgages, but eventually you know, like we've worked it so like we don't have a big monthly sum of money to come up with. I mean, my daughter yeah. you know, has to come up with like, I can't believe how much money she has to come up with for rent every month. And I don't think I could keep doing this. Like if, if that was right. something I needed to, to do. I feel like when you decide or not decide. I mean, it depends, right? But as a creative person, you just, your relationship with money changes because you realize kind of what a lie money is in some ways. Like, you know, here comes a chunk of money and then the taxes get taken out and you pay these bills and then another. It's just a very different thing than having a flow job where it's just like the money's coming in every single month. You just kind of change your relationship with money. I don't know if that's happened to you, but I, I found I had to like ease up, you know, like, I, I went right from art school to playing in bands and just, you know, just kind of scrambling in, in New York City, um, which, you know, at the time in the 80s was, you know, really actually kind of cheap when you look at it now. Right. I paid $300 for an apartment, which seemed like a fortune. And I, I remember like, saving up the money to buy one cassette tape so that I could like record myself, you know, like it, it <laughs> felt like a fortune. It was like $4.99 or something. Should I get the, you know, the, the like metallic kind? Is that, you know, like that was like 50 cents more. It actually yeah. wasn't better for recording. So you, I got the cheaper kind, but, but, um, but anyway, so it's always, it's always been this way. So I just, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's the water you swim in. Yes, it really, it really is. And, 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 you know, I do, I do feel lucky that I've always had friends and family to help, <laughs> help like, you yeah. know, kind of like bit, not bail me out, but yeah, just like give me a little, little, little log to rest on when, when the water right. gets to. I wanted to ask you about your daughter. So I'm glad you mentioned her because, um, your book opens with a scene with you and your daughter in a van traveling somewhere in a van, I think. And she's like, I just want to travel around and make music my whole life. And your first reaction is, Oh my God, no, you can't do that thing. And then you realize like, actually she just wants to do what I did. Yeah. How do you feel about the fact that she's followed so closely in your footsteps? 
Well, um, I guess, you know, she's so smart and I, I guess I, you know, in one way I wish she would have like, I don't know, done like what we're talking about, gone for something more stable. Um, but it just never, I, I guess it was never a real possibility that that would, I mean, she's way more bohemian and uh, uncompromising than I could ever be. You know, like if someone had asked me, you know, back when I had like <laughs> Diary of a Mod Housewife, my first solo album, like, hey, would you like to do a Diary of a Mod, like a Mod Housewife line of cleaning products? I would have just like put on an apron and curlers and like posed, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I would have sold out for anything probably, but she's much more <laughs> like an artist, you know, and much more kind of tough about like what she believes in. And, you know, so I, I admire her so greatly and, you know, and, and so, you know, the, the, the sort of creative side of me does the mother side of me is like, Oh, you know, like I just, you know, you just want your kids to be all right. And, but she is real smart and she does, you know, she, she does seem to kind of juggle and manage things. So, um, I, I, like I said, I really admire her for that. Yeah. How did you manage parenting and being an artist? If we're talking about, you know, this, this sort of ups and downs and everything, how did you manage being a creative person and parenting a child? Well, I guess I think um, in, in, in retrospect, you know, I was probably really selfish a lot of the time. And um, just, I guess, kind of in the way that you almost have to be that you just have like a tunnel vision when you're working on your stuff that, um, you know, that you yeah. don't let other things intrude that much. But, you know, being a mom, I, I do feel like it was always there. And uh, I, I, I just managed the best I could. I, I've, I've been working on another part of my memoir about moving to Nashville and I'm finding just like so many shameful episodes where I just feel like I was an absolutely horrible mother and, and, um, and, you know, and just made some really, really, really irresponsible choices. And, um, so it's a, like a much harder reckoning than like that first coming of age where it's like, oh, well, I didn't know. I just, you know, I'm just making right. it up as I go along. But then once yeah. you hit 40, you know, and you do kind of know, like, it's just, yeah, then having to take responsibility for, for maybe just making some kind of bad, you know, just bad choices. And um, so, but it's, it's all hindsight, right? I mean, I, I, I've similarly grappled with things in my memoir already, and I only have a 12 year old. I already know the mistakes I've made when this kid was five, six, you know, I can look back and be like, Oh God. And it's, it's gutting the things that, you know, we, the mistakes we make and the ways we might be selfish, but you know, we're just doing the best we can in the, it's in the true. moment to moment, you know, it's like, we have to forgive ourselves, I feel like, but it, it's probably, and I know it's not hard to write about and reckon with. But, but you're absolutely right. I, I think one thing I always thought, and, and it, it, it was really hard when my, when my daughter did go off to school and 
she wasn't there anymore. Like I always felt like whatever I did, I feel like I'm going to start sobbing. You guys have this. <laughs> me, me too. Sorry. <laughs> like, I, I, I felt like everything I did, I did for our, our, you know, for us, not just for myself. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a way that, you know, leaving aside like completely, you know, being a negligent parent, because we're not talking about that. And I feel like yes. very clear that you were not a negligent parent, but that a, a writer friend of mine, Renee said once, like writers and artists have to be selfish. There has to be some selfishness just to like get it done and give yourself the space in the room. That's, I think it, it does kind of just go with the territory. You're right. And we're mirroring, we're mirroring something. We're, we're modeling something. I mean, this is the way I get myself through it. I'm modeling a different kind of life for my child and I'm modeling that my work and my art is important. And I don't think I'm being neglectful, but certainly I could have made some better choices along the way. And every day I make mistakes, but there's only so much of a person you can be. And if we were men, we wouldn't be talking about this. You're, you're right. <laughs> I know you're absolutely right. No, we wouldn't be asking. Yeah, yeah that, that's so true. Yeah, we have to go easy on ourselves. And it is it is something uh, important to remember, like while writing about it or talking about it to, to just, um, to, yeah, to just kind of like, ease up a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is this idea of the perfect mother, and it just doesn't fucking exist. You know, it's just yeah. like, there's, there's no one. <laughs> I mean, the fact that your daughter decided to do pretty much exactly what you do means that you did something pretty right, I would That's think. Right. That's true, Kim. But one thing that that I, you know, and who knows, you know, things can change in an instant. I, I don't know that my daughter will choose to become a mother. And um, I don't think that that's on me, you know, like it's, you know, the world is in a pretty shitty state, you know, like, it, I can understand a, a, a young person nowadays, like going, you know what, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. Um, but that, you know, being a mother really, I guess, you know, was the greatest. Yeah. So yeah. she won't want it. But I don't think I hope that it wasn't because I was like, a bad role model as a as a mother, you know. <laughs> I, know I, I don't so. think so. I, I, I wasn't there. I admit I wasn't there. Although I have met Hazel once, many years ago. <laughs> that was the Kim wrote the cute. I mean, it was like such a great, um, you know, it was so great when you came to visit us in Williamsburg in our in our apartment and and um, I lo I loved that article that you wrote for Spin oh, thank about, you. about us. I just kind of and that was like such a, I mean, I think Hazel was like seven, a seven eight, and just in such a great, you know. She was so imaginative and I mean, she still mm -hmm. is, but just like wearing, you know, whatever she wanted and the great loving age, the music yeah. she loved, even though, as you said, it was the Spice Girls, you know, <laughs> and just clomping around in these big, chunky 90s shoes. And <laughs> it was the Spice Girls. But as I recall, she could quote entire scenes from the symptoms, Simpsons verbatim. 
Absolutely. Am I wrong and about still, that? Oh, she was, and she, she still can. If ever I'm kind of looking for, remember, like, you know, when, when they brought all those jello molds to the, you know, to Mr. Burns party, like, what did he say? Like, she'll just like, she's got it all there, right? You know, it's right. Every episode so for however many seasons. She always had a, she always had a very, um, you know, I think she really was a child of the Simpsons. Like, you know, she always had this, this, this sort of built in cynicism or, or just kind of a wisdom about the, the world and, and how, you know, just like how crappy a lot of it is and, but funny <laughs> too. Let's take a quick break from some ads. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule, essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I want to talk about, and Kim, I think you know more about this time, but I want to talk about these, the time where you were writing about Amy, what Amy, what was your life like then? What was, you know, what was the, the sort of 
peak, that sort of moment of success, you were, it sounds like you were a single, were you a single mom? I don't know if you were a single mom at the time, or you were at least a a mom while you were also having all this success. What was, what was that like in New York at that moment? Well, it was, um, I had, I had just split up with my husband of the time, uh, Hazel's dad. And um, so like financially it was really hard because, you know, we all of a sudden had like two apartments and, you know, that like that, just like the cold, hard reality part of that was hard. We'd had one car and like who got the car, which didn't really run very well anyway. But, but um yeah, so just sort of the practicalities were really kind of challenging. But, you know, it was like there, <laughs> I think I said in my book, there was one month in my life, nine, uh, you know, like uh, August 1996, where everything went right. Um, and And it was <laughs> just like, oh, my God, like, people are really responding to this record. At the same time, I, I felt as I was kind of wrapping it all up and putting it all together that they would. It didn't surprise me. It felt like it all came together somehow. And like that somehow what I'd imagined it was going to convey actually did, did um, it showed itself to be what I'd hoped it would be. That's amazing that you knew. That's amazing that you had the sense though, that it was going to land. Like that you kind of, that wasn't surprising that you, you felt it. Yeah. And I mean, it took a couple years of work on that record and kind of not giving up um, the idea that that this would resonate with people, that I wasn't the only one um, who was just kind of trying to juggle all these things like, you know, trying to home have a home life, but also, you know, make some kind of living, but also have some sort of creative expression and still be a fan also of the stuff, you know, the music and books and art and all the, and food and just all the things that were exciting to me. Well, one of the things about you, Amy, is that a lot, I mean, and, and Diary of a Mott Housewife is a, is a wonderful album that everybody should go listen to on Spotify or go buy or do whatever. It's actually, it's because actually it's wonderful. Not, it's not on Spotify. Amy. Amazing. It's not. Amy, it's weird. Wait, where do we have to get it? <laughs> yeah, you have to come to me. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> no it, it's... Um, I mean, I know I'm not alone. This is, you know, and this is like a whole big conversation, but a lot of of artists of kind of my, you know, like the same age as me, people who put records out in the 80s, 90s, like a lot of us now are in the process of trying to get our work back because everybody signed these recording deals where you basically signed away the rights to the music forever. Um, And a lot of that now is like we're all working to like, to ch- you know to get, get it back. get the rights back so um so at the moment it's not on spotify um and i don't have the right to put it out there but i do have i do have it you can get it you can get it it's just a, <laughs> you got to look a little deeper <laughs> i want to talk about a song that was on um a shams album called the summer of my wasted youth that you wrote Oh, um, that, which that is, actually was on my second solo album, Summer oh, of My Wasted Youth. Yeah. 
<laughs> I got my I got my Amy exactly. Rigby dis- discography wrong. In any case, it is a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. I've, I don't think I've ever heard a song. As a matter of fact, you do you remember? Of course, you do. During COVID, when Yola Tango didn't have their um, Hanukkah shows right. because of COVID, and they had a they had a um, they streamed a show. And they always have a couple of really, you know, it's always kind of exciting to see who their opening act is going to be. And I was sitting at home and it was like, you know, if it wasn't Christmas Eve, it was Christmas Day. It was right around, Mm -hmm. you know, or it was some day that I was like feeling sentimental about being alone. And you sang that song and you can ask Jen, like, I'm not a crier. No, I'm not a crier at all. And I was just like, because it's the most beautiful song about like nostalgia and and that feeling that I mean, at least to me, that you know, maybe things were all better then. That's you know, I I I feel myself welling up just thinking about the experience of like that song always does move me, and it feels so like it just does kind of something about the chords and the melody do always take me back. So it just feels like nostalgia. I don't know why, but I. You know, we were in this uh, studio, the WNYC studio down in Lower Manhattan. And like you say, it was really close to Christmas. And the studio had like these windows, like right on the corner of like Varick Street. And I don't know, kind of right around where Film Forum is and all that. Yeah. And um, and this it was a Friday night right around Christmas. It was like a, a peak you know, COVID time, the, the street was absolutely empty. There was, I thought like in, I don't know, just like any other time that window would have been just like crowded with bystanders looking in like, oh my God, Yola Tango's in, you know, in this studio, you know, but it, it was just like, it was so eerie and it was just, it was really emotional to, to, to perform that, you know, to do that, that streaming thing. Um, from from there that 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 felt if it did feel like more I was mourning something that wasn't there maybe it would come back you know I think you know now it's probably like super crowded down on that corner but um for that moment it, it really did feel like something was really over yeah um I want to talk about um you co-founded and worked at Tier Three, which was an influential but short-lived punk club that hosted now legendary acts like the Raincoats, Bauhaus, and the Slits. What were the best and worst parts of that experience? Because this is, I mean, this is really cool that you did this. (laughs) (laughs) It was really that classic, like, hey, kids, let's put on a show kind of thing, like, just felt like, well, we need a club that's kind of like our kind of club. This was in like 1978, 79. And um, the Mud Club had just started. And that that seemed like more, oh, they're so, too sophisticated down there. And, you know, it's like <laughs> kind of for older people. They're like 25. And we were, you know, like still in our teens or, you know, like getting like getting to be like 20, 21. But um so it, it, it did just feel like a, a like it, it wasn't even a big plan. It wasn't a lot of work. It just felt like it was just kind of joyful and fun. And, and one thing just followed another. And if, like we started in a little 
storefront on St. Mark's place and then the police kicked us out. So we've just like kept finding other lofts to do it until we finally landed in this little restaurant space where a friend was uh, waitressing and she convinced the owners to like have music. And then they found they were making more money with music than serving lunch <laughs> to, to like, <laughs> I think it was across from the bell telephone building or maybe it was called AT&T by then, but um, yeah, to lunch workers, you know, to serving lunch to workers downtown. But um, so it, it was just like such a fun, creative, just like no, nobody was looking to get paid or, you know, like the bands were, I think. Um, uh, I think at first they probably weren't even charging people to get in. And it was like, oh, wait, we should charge admission. <laughs> Because people are coming and, but, um, you know, the worst part was the drugs. Okay. There was just a lot of heavy, heavy drugs. And it was really, I mean, it killed some people and, you know, really like it was just that, that was a really kind of dark, scary thing that was going on. And, yeah. um, what and year was, was this around? 79. Okay. 1979, 1980. Okay. You you got to the city in 76, right? Yes. To study fashion illustration at Parsons. Right. And, and the title of your book, Girl to City, is, is it's, it's a play on the famous Ford, President Ford to City, New York Post headline. Right. Drop um, dead. It, was, it was a tough time in the city. It was a really tough time to be in New York City. But I also get the feeling that there was a lot of magic around that time because so much was possible. It was just so kind of free. Um, the drinking age was still 18. Um, it, it just felt like, yeah, it didn't even feel like there were that many cars around. Um, most of them were abandoned on the side of the road. That you'd see, <laughs> you know, were burned out. Like just things, it just seemed like there was nobody really paying that much attention to like how things should run. So it felt, like you could just kind of make make things up and make your own way and um and also just being you know a 17 year old it just felt you know like this amazing new world that was like i mean i could never have even dreamt some of the things that i that i saw and um, and you were young cuz you went to you went to college young so you were yeah. you were really young yeah. Yeah. So it was, there was, there was a really cool uh, article by Tim Summer in the, in the times the other day, which was about uh, bands like the student teachers um, who like the gist of his article was um, a, about teenagers, high school students kind of going to punk and no wave clubs. And, and I was like, Oh yeah, he didn't write about us. Cause we were over the hill by then we were college students. <laughs> we were 20. So, you know, <laughs> they were still having to like sneak out of their parents' house. It was, it was an interesting article. Um, but, but it was, yeah. So there was a lot of like that, um, just kind of youthful creative energy and, and I mean, an interesting thing was was also the the kind of overlap between all the people who'd moved to New York City from all over the country, you know, the weirdos of every art department in every high school in the U.S., but also like 
all the kids who came in from Long Island, New Jersey, you know, um, the boroughs, like, I don't know, it was that, like, that was kind of a, it's only in retrospect that I think that was such a great thing too, because they were the real New Yorkers, you know, but at the time we were like these snobs, like, oh, well, you have to be from Manhattan, you know, like, it's all about Manhattan and, you know, but, but that, just that really, that scrappy energy that they brought from, you know, Queens and Brooklyn and and Long Island and New Jersey and, you know, was, was actually like a really big part of the music that was made. And, and also, yeah, just like when I look at pictures from back then and what people are wearing and stuff, um, it, it feels so kind of like humble and unpretentious. Um, like you had to go really far to to do something like I think like a Steven Sprouse dress for Debbie Harry like that was like oh my god that's really like a purposeful kind of punk thing but most of it was just people making do with thrift shop clothes and and like the Fiorucci thing that you bought that you thought was cool when all you knew was disco but then you slashed it and put some pins in it because disco wasn't cool anymore. You wanted to be punk. <laughs> it was just right. very, you had to figure out how to, how to do these things yourself and you kind of did the best you could. And some of it was probably like super lame, <laughs> but, but you mm -hmm. didn't have anything to compare it to, you know? I mean, people have written books about the music scene in New York in those years. There was so much going on and so much creativity in so many different directions, too, it seems like. So, yes, so much. I mean, there was all um, – I went to see this wonderful um, show at Joe's Pub a couple weeks ago. It was Esther Ballant, who I don't know if you saw ever saw Stranger Than Paradise, the first Jim Jarmusch film. And she's, you know, the young woman – um, well, I remember her as a teen, she was a teenager. She was like a few years younger than, than me and, and her parents started squat theater. And so that, you know, there was this whole like downtown theater scene and, you know, and avant-garde art and, and, um, yeah, there was just a lot of like Kiki Smith was hanging out at tier three and Nan Golden. I, I, feel pretty sure it was one of the first places she ever projected her slides um, wow. that became Ballad of Sexual Dependency. And it was, you know, and with, with this great, uh, a DJ playing like a great soundtrack and um, it, you know, but at, at the time, like being young, you just kind of take it as you do. Like, yeah, of course, like everything's great, you know, like everything is happening. And, and, you know, um, I think, and ho hopefully like for, young I think it 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 was a great time for us but I, I think there's always cool scenes for for young people maybe maybe they're not as exposed or even maybe it's starting to be overexposed the late 70s in in New York City but yeah um there wasn't a whole lot else going on I guess and do you have a favorite like story of you like rubbing shoulders with one of the like punk rock stars of the 80s and 70s <laughs> um I was always so like intimidated and and scared by by all those people but I guess it was pretty sweet how um you know like I loved Richard Hell and the Voidoids um 
just such a, a great band and he always looked so amazing. Then of course, like um, when the Shams, uh, my girl group uh, with uh, my two friends, Sue Garner and Amanda Uprichard, you know, we, we were starting to, we, we kind of started at a, as, as like trying to make money playing for children's parties. Cause I'd read this article in New York magazine about like how kids entertainers like could make a lot of money. So we thought we'll work, we'll work up some fun songs for kids. And, um, but, uh, you know, I think we played a few gigs like at clubs, like the Pyramid Club. And Amanda started going out with Richard Hell. And suddenly, like, Richard Hell was like our biggest fan. And like, he wanted to write <laughs> our, he wanted to write our bio. And he wrote this amazing, it was like a great piece of writing about the shams and how, how we were beauty, be beauty shop soul, he called us. And, um, <laughs> It was just that that was just a super sweet, you know, like to become friends with him and to and to feel like he was um, and say, same with Lenny Kay. He was one of the he was one of those like I'd read his Doc Rock column in Rock Scene magazine in the Giant Eagle in Pittsburgh, you know, just like what what is this rock magazine doing in the supermarket? You know, it was such a it really kind of stuck with me and then saw Lenny playing with Patti Smith and saw him playing solo at the Manhattan Ocean Club and just thought he was like a great all around like artist and writer and and also seemed just like a super nice person too, like approachable. And then he he became just such a big f fan of the Shams. So I, I feel like maybe like rubbing up against, you know, my heroes. It didn't really happen till I was playing music myself when I was kind of just in the trenches as a fan. Um, I, I would, I felt, you know, like really pretty too intimidated to, to even get close to them. Um, okay. We did have a party um, like everyone went to the Palladium to see the Clash play. It was their first New York show and it was an incredible show. And, um, and our friend Henry had this loft above a funeral parlor down on second Avenue. And he said, you know, invited everyone down there, like maybe the Clash will come. And, uh, and so we all go down there. Everyone's just kind of, you know, trying to like chat, have fun, maybe dance a little, like, will they come? And then I swear, like, these, uh, like, a freight elevator doors opened. And the, I swear, like, the clash was, like, silhouetted in <laughs> the elevator, you know, like, and they, like, walked into the party. And it was just, like, our lives are made. <laughs> this is the greatest moment of my life, you know, aside from, like, seeing them on stage. Even, like, your secondary stories are, like, really good stories. <laughs> You have so many good <laughs> stories, but I want to go back to creativity for a minute because you were so like relentlessly creative. I follow your blog and you also compose songs. You have a couple of excellent Trumpy songs. Like you'll, you'll compose a song and you'll put it out there. It seems like creativity for you is, it's like a faucet, you know, it's like you can turn it on pretty effectively, but does it ever not work that way? Do you ever feel creatively stuck? And if so, how do you get out of it? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if this works for everybody, but back in the early 90s, I discovered the artist's way. 
you know, the Julia Cameron book. Um, yeah, we've I talked like about maybe it a you guys bit. Yeah. T- I think I heard you talking about it. I was probably oh, yeah. shouting at my phone, like, you know, <laughs> but anyway, and, and like working in the bookstore, I still, you know, see, we sell a copy probably every week to a young person, usually. And um, I mean, that was such a formative book for me doing the morning pages. I've never stopped. I still do my morning pages. I'm not like religious about it's got to be three pages long and, you know, but, but I have to like sit down and write in the morning something. And that always like, I just feel like it's that keeps the faucet flowing. Like I never run out of ideas or, um, or things to work on. And so I don't know if it would be the same if I hadn't discovered that book, but, but I feel, you know, maybe, maybe somebody might say it's like a kind of a praying or it's a, like a prayer almost a way to, you know, like a devotional sort of thing. Um, but it does, it does seem like it, it always like is where I kind of come up with ideas and jot things down and, um, but, but I think, you know, if, if I didn't feel like working on anything, you know, I mean, I've spent many, many hours trawling the racks at TJ Maxx, just going like, what the hell am I doing? I should be working on something, but I just need to like, look at some crappy cl- clothes and wow, the siren song of TJ Maxx is pretty strong. <laughs> See if there's a bargain somewhere. Yeah. So, <laughs> But and at least you're not you know. scrolling your screen. Like I think that oh. actually going through TJ Maxx clothes is probably more creative, more generative than than looking at Instagram. Honestly, but I'm gonna. I think that I'm gonna remember that because I, yeah. I do. <laughs> I do feel myself, you know, drawn in to my screen, and and especially after the isolation of the last couple years. Yeah, you know, like usually I'd be out playing gig after gig, talking to people, hanging out and traveling, you know, just like overhearing conversations. So I guess I feel like it's kind of um, it maybe kind of fills that void a little bit and, and try not to beat myself up too much about about hanging out on Twitter and just like answering people I don't know just getting into I don't get into fights or anything with people like I don't have the I'm not thick-skinned enough to like do that kind of thing but but I I enjoy it so I don't think we should be too hard on ourselves about about all that time we spend except like to put it down and go for a walk that seems important what has surprised you about getting older? Because you said you said you're in your sixties, right? So what what has yeah. been surprising? Um, I guess just that I still feel like I'm in my forties. I mean, I don't know. I, I <laughs> or maybe, and also that I thought I would have figured everything out by now more. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess, you know, I, I think the, I almost think the fifties were harder than the six, than being in my sixties. Kim, do you think, I feel like I've maybe heard you say something along those lines. Well, my, I mean, I'm 58. 
my forties were just a shit show. Okay. My, my 40s were just horrible. So my 50s have been better if, you know, even on their worst day of my 50s, just because they're not my 40s where everything was terrible. Why were your 50s rough? Because I'm about I, to hit my 50s and now <laughs> I'm like, oh, tell me everything, Amy. <laughs> I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe the 50s to me felt like still kind of clinging to some youthful vision of myself image of myself um that that and and just it just felt like like holding on to this thing that was like slipping away um and and also yeah just uh dealing with with um being the mother of a young adult versus just being you know the parent of of an adult child which is I have to say like that, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing and something to remember, Jen, when, you know, like what it's hard, you know, like all the challenges of, of parenting, like as your, as your kids starts, hopefully like figuring some things out for themselves, um, you start to lean on them a little bit and it's like, oh, this is amazing. Like there's this person that I feel like so comfortable with of course, I don't want to burden them with like all my right. shit, you know, but, but I feel, you know, like you have this, this wonderful relationship if you, you know, can get to that. Um, so that I think that that it, like, you think like having a teenager is hard, but like the 20s are really hard too. I think like not, not to say, you know, that there's just like a lot that a lot of growing up happens then I know it did for me and I think for my daughter too so so I think maybe that's a part of it I haven't really thought about that until this moment um but but also just yeah feeling like illusions are just falling away about like what I won't say like what you can be and what you can do because I never give up my <laughs> my delusion. Maybe they're not illusions. Maybe they're just delusions at this point of, of you know, just like, you know, still gonna, gonna have that hit one day, you know, like just like right. still gonna, you know, I don't know, maybe it does start to recede a little bit and you're just kind of like, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe the biggest moment kind of already happened but um there's still a lot of joy in the moments that are left and maybe i appreciate them more this is this is talking about like pretty much everything i guess well speaking of big moments you and your husband your current husband met when you were how old um I guess I was, yeah, just about like 40, but we didn't get together till probably like six years later. It was a little bit later. So how, what advantages do you think, maybe this is just a stupid, obvious question, but I'm curious what advantages you see to meeting a life partner later? Um, well, probably like not trying to raise a child together which is yes like a, you know well that's Romelini's big thing about Ben and Jen you should never raise a child together if you want to if you want to like if you want to still fuck <laughs> sorry to be so I mean, filthy it, no it's really challenging and and um 
yeah, it's like being the, you know, CEOs of this, like, you know, not very profitable <laughs> corporation. The CHOs, it's like the chief household officer. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, but yeah, that, um, I think, you know, it, part of it was probably um, being in a position to meet somebody, meet them kind of halfway, like someone who'd done a lot of the same, you know, who was doing a lot of the same kind of things as far as work and, and just the struggle of, yeah, just trying to like, um, keep it together as a, as a, as a musician, be independent and, uh, you know, someone who kind of knew like all the, how hard it is to like go out and play all by yourself, you know, like no road crew, nobody just drive yourself, set yourself up, you know, do a sound check, play again, you know, go find some dinner, you know, put your makeup. Well, he doesn't have to worry about putting makeup on, but like try to get ready for a show in like in the front seat of your car because there's nowhere in the venue. Play the gig, talk to people, clean up, go back. You know, so, so, you know, like we understand, like if he doesn't call me for two days when he's on the road, I don't go crazy. I'm just like, I know how hard it is and you're going and you're, you just never stop. And so like, if he gets to a hotel at two in the morning, just let him watch TV and go to sleep. We don't have to, yeah, anyway, all of those kind of things. I think there was not that kind of pressure to like, you know, like show me you care, you know, the, like I don't, don't either, neither of us right. have felt that sort of, um, you know, we, we've just been a great, a great team and like been, I think also maybe I, and maybe, I don't know if this is our ages or where we were at in, in life, but just feel like we're for each other. Like we're not in competition. We're not, you know, cause people will say, cause when we first got together, we, we played together for, you know, almost 10 years exclusively, we just did gigs together and, you know, we just like wanted to be together and it, and it was, it was great. It was, and it was super romantic. It wasn't always easy, but, but we, um, we loved it. And then we wanted to go off and do our own things and, and that's been fine too. And, and, um, people will kind of, sometimes it feels like they'll try to pit us against each other, but, you know, it's not, it's not going to work because we just, you know, like I, I found my journal from when I first got together with Eric and, and I, it was, and I'm, usually I throw my journals away, but I must've known this was an important one. Cause I, it just said like, he is my hero. And I just feel yeah. like it's, if ever I'm just getting like pissed off about something, you know, like I just remember that, like, and I, I, I still do see him as a hero and, and, and also as a, as a personal hero. So um, maybe I wouldn't have been able to, to kind of deal with that, like when I was younger or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You might yeah. have competed with it or you wouldn't have been as contained like you would have been or felt, yeah, I might've felt threatened yeah. or felt jealous. And sometimes I, 
you know, sometimes I do still feel jealous. He's, he's got a song that just like, he's got a classic song that like the whole world sings and, you know, like any songwriter that is like, you know, that's like the Holy Grail. Wait, and, what? You know, Wait, what? I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> what is the song that the whole world well, sings? Very- <laughs> He's got a song called Whole Wide World. And okay, so there's this music festival in Asbury Park next month. The headliners are Green Day and Cage the Elephant. Both of them have covered that song. Now, how often does that happen? You know, so, um, and they're not the only ones, but um, so it's, and, and the thing is, but it's that song that, like drew me to him. It's that song that like brought us together. So it's just like a magic song. But yeah, sometimes I feel like I, w- I wish I had that a song like that yeah. that was just so kind of effortlessly perfect that any band could go. We, we're going to cover that song. I covered that song, and that's how I ended up meeting. That's Eric, so, so you've heard the song Romolini. It, you've I, heard I mean, it. I'm gonna I'm gonna play it after we get. I I, I probably play, have heard it, but it I love that we're talking about that because it is when you're with a partner who does the same thing that you do. Like obviously, you're like, oh, I'm so proud. Oh my god, I love, I respect, I admire. But then there's always <laughs> a little piece that's like, oh fuck you. <laughs> There's always a tiny, tiny piece that's like, oh, like, why did you write that so effortlessly? And I, I'm struggling, especially if you're in a place where you're creatively, it's not flowing as much. It can, it can be a, I I think it's good to admit these things is what I'm saying. But I I guess, but I never, I, I always just like the magic of that song and also knowing how hard, like Eric kept the faith, like, through the years when kind of nobody really noticed or wanted to know, you know, like, and kept going. I, 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 (laughs) I, whatever he gets from it, I, I feel like, you know, I, he deserves every bit of it. Um, But, but yeah, that doesn't make me not want to um, have you know some something like that you know in my and 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 I guess in my own modest way I have you know um and and then it it does reach the point where you get older and you're like you know things like that maybe only come when you're in your tw- 20s 30s like that right. that kind of you're you're feeling like the joy of discovery you can never get back to that place again creatively you know too much and um and you work with that and you work with all that knowledge that you have to create stuff but but that that kind of innocent just like yeah. you know a two chord song <laughs> right you know too much to to get back to that in a genuine that's such an way. interesting way to put that i've never thought about it that way that's so right it is i felt it too i felt it exactly when you said it it was so right that's exactly we talk a lot about ambition of so much on the show that's that you really just nailed something there which is the innocence that has to do with your almost like a confidence of ignorance in a way that allows yeah. you to yeah. create in a different way than you do when you're older. 
I know it's can't can't get back there in a genuine way. Mm -mm. But no, just got to (laughs) work, work with, with what, you know, the knowledge that we have and all. So speaking of that, what do you still want to do? Um, well, I would love if someone, (laughs) and there's a couple people have talked to me about this. I would love to see my book turned into like a series or, you know, and I'm sure that's like, everybody wants that, you know, but, um, or, or, you know, like a, like a play or I don't know, just some, like, I would love to work with someone else to take a piece of music or something I've written and turn it into something else that I could not come to on my own. I think I I would still like to collaborate some more um, in ways that I haven't. Um, So, because I I do feel like a lot of the time, like I'm just kind of like, you know, a lone, (laughs) lone wolf. And, uh, and, and, you know, I've done a lot of song, collaborating on songs, co-writing. But yeah, like, just kind of bringing together like another theater or film or TV or something like that. Um, What do you call this thing? (laughs) Um, A different, a a different medium? A different, form, different medium, medium, medium <laughs> yeah, creative form, and um, yeah, just <laughs> definitely like to you know write some more books. I want to finish the my second one, Girl to Country. Um, that's ones I have a rough draft written, and I want to push that one through. And and um, you know, I w- I would love to you know to to <laughs> to play some to play some bigger stages, which I love to do. And I've only ever done it like, you know, g- getting to play with Yola Tang. I, because I did the, the, um, the pandemic one, which was without an audience, they asked me back um, when they were at the Bowery Ballroom. And it's not the hugest venue, but just like to be on a stage in front of a huge, you know, like a big couple hundred. It's a big crowd. It's a big venue. It's a big crowd, and it just felt so great. And you know, um, I, I don't know if you remember when Bob Dylan was, you know, when they told him he was going to get the Nobel Prize, and he wrote that beautiful speech that was kind of like um, to play for fifty people is harder than anything um, because that's at that number of people in a room, they all see every bit of your honesty. They, they just, you can't pull anything over on them and it's fucking hard, you know, to do that over and over again. It's also great, you know, like it's very powerful, but to play for just like a massive crowd where you don't see and feel every person like oh you know like oh did did they look away oh like oh is she enjoying it you know yes yes that that i guess you know i still have dreams (laughs) still have dreams of that you know this has been great amy this has been so inspiring and like i I didn't know what we were gonna talk about but thank you guys so much this has just been so wonderful i really appreciate you having me on oh i could talk to you i i feel like i could talk to you for three more hours i honestly i feel like i just am like oh my god (laughs) i do i do feel like we have a lot i know (laughs) and you and you almost made romalini cry you did make me cry a few times so you know that's always a successful episode so 
<laughs> Thank you, Amy. Thank you both. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We're your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms. It really makes a difference. Uh, we read five-star reviews on the show periodically. If you want to support the production of the show, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash everything is fine. It really helps us with the cost of the production of the show. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at EIF Podcast. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We have a private Facebook group. We are on LinkedIn as well. Um, if you want to follow Kim, you can find her at girlsofacertainage.com. You can find me at tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. The show is mixed and edited by the great Natalie Rivera. Thank you again, Natalie, and we'll talk to you next week. 